Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. Now, let's hear from Mike. This is the third in a series of messages that I'm preaching entitled, How God Treats His Children. So let me begin today by just very briefly reviewing the first two. In the first message, I said, God blesses believers with everything they need to grow to spiritual maturity. Matter of fact, the Bible makes the emphatic statement, Blessed be God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with all spiritual blessings in Christ. We're complete in Him, to quote Paul in the book of Colossians. So that if you've trusted Christ, you have everything you need to grow to Christ-like spiritual maturity. On top of that, if you continue to abide in Christ, then God will continually supply the grace you need to be successful in spiritual growth in this life and to be rewarded in the next. If there's one word I would use to summarize that first concept, it is God blesses us. The second message had to do with the fact that God wants us to produce fruit, spiritual fruit, another way of saying grow in Christian virtues like love and joy and peace. And some don't. And so what God does is he encourages those who don't. Because what he wants is for them to trust him and to grow to the point that they produce spiritual fruit. Now, Part of the way he does that is he supplies his word to us. John 15 says, if we abide in him and his word abides in us, then that's what he is after. He also supplies other means, such as other believers, to encourage us and exhort us and teach us and be an example for us. If there's one word that would sum up that second concept, It's simply the word encouragement. So if you've trusted Jesus Christ for the gift of eternal life, then he has blessed you and encourages you. The third concept, which is the one I want to deal with today, is simply the concept of discipline. The Bible teaches that as a good father, God the Father disciplines his children. Now, what does that mean? What is involved? How does God discipline us? Well, those are questions, I think, that are not often addressed, but in terms of how God treats his children, this is an extremely important concept. So, let's look at it. The word discipline means to child train which is exactly what this little short series is about. This is how God trains his children. That word only appears 13 times in the New Testament, and of those 13 times, only three of them are in passages where we are told about how God disciplines his children. So if you understand those three passages, you would have a pretty good idea of how God treats his children in the area of discipline. To begin with, let's look at Hebrews chapter 12. This is probably the central passage on that concept. Hebrews chapter 12. And look at verse 1. Therefore, we also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us lay aside every weight and sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, 
looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to blood, striving against sin. Now, obviously, this passage is talking about the fact that God disciplines us. As a matter of fact, he goes on in the next verse to say, have you forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons? And he quotes Proverbs chapter 3. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son he receives. The Greek word translated chasten in verse 5 and in verse 6 is the word discipline. It means to child train. So the passage is really talking about God disciplining his children. But let's go back and start at the top. In verse 1, As a matter of fact, throughout these opening verses, what he's saying is, endure. Endure. That's the point. He says, laying aside every weight and sin that easily ensnares us, let us run with endurance. And that's the thought. Run with endurance. Now, what is going on here? Why is he exhorting them to run with endurance? And the image, of course, is running a race like a marathon. And what you're going to need to finish that, what is it, 26.2 miles in a marathon, is you're going to need endurance. So he's picturing the Christian life as an endurance race, like a long-distance race. But there's more going here on here than that. Look at the passage again. He says, looking unto Jesus in verse 2, who endured the cross, and despising the shame. Drop down to verse 3. Consider him who endured such hostility. Now, if you pick out those words, cross, shame, hostility, then you get the picture that it's not just enduring the race, it's enduring other things besides, such as shame such as hostility, such as even enduring a cross. That is excruciatingly painful and leading to death. So he is no doubt describing being persecuted. In other words, what's going on in the lives of the people to whom he originally wrote, they were being persecuted. We know from this book that they were Christians, but they were Jewish Christians. And this indicates they were being persecuted and they were contemplating abandoning Christianity and going back to Judaism because of the persecution. And he is saying, no, endure this race. Don't get discouraged. Don't despise what's going on, as he will explain in a minute. Just endure. That's the point of these opening verses. He says, endure as if you're running in a race. Then he says in verse 5, have you not forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons? So the first figure of speech, the analogy, is endure as if you're running a race. And the second is endure as if you are a son. Now, why does a son, a child of God, son or daughter, have to endure as a child? Well, that's where he quotes Proverbs 3. My son, do not despise the child training of the Lord, discipline, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. 
For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son he receives. Ah, what a child has to do is endure the discipline of the father. A good father disciplines his children. He disciplines them out of love. Notice what he says. Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Matter of fact, the book of Proverbs says if a parent doesn't discipline his children, he hates them. A good parent disciplines his children, right? All the parents said, right. The children have a doubt. Now, that discipline can be severe. From the child's point of view, it's always severe. Uh, he, he goes so far as to use the word scourging in verse 6. He scourges every son he receives. Perhaps this is talking about spanking. Now, I know that's not politically correct. It's not PC, but it's BC. It's not politically correct, but it's Bible correct. The Bible teaches it's perfectly permissible to spank your children. Matter of fact, it's a good idea. How many of you grew up being spanked? No, don't raise your hand. <laughs> Somebody raised both hands. How many of you spanked your children? All right. That's what you got to endure. He says, now don't be discouraged. The Father is doing this because He loves you. How many of you had a parent who when they punished you said, I'm, it hurts me worse than you? How many of you ever said that as a parent? Right, because you're doing this because you love them. You know it hurts. It doesn't have to be spanking. These days, anything hurts. You know, take away their iPhone and it, they die. But the point is that a good parent disciplines, corrects, instructs, and yes, punishes. Why? Because he loves you, or your mother loves you, wants what is best for you. So he is simply saying that you should not be discouraged, you shouldn't give up, but like you're running in a race, endure like a son going through discipline, Endure, just remember, God is doing this because he loves you. Now, it gets interesting. Read verse 7. If you endure chastening, child training, God deals with you as sons. For, when, or for what son is there whom a father does not chasten? I mean, after all, all good fathers discipline their children. So he says, if, that Greek word could be translated since. Since you endure chastening, God deals with you as a son. That's what fathers do. And that's what God the Father does. So since we are his children, he disciplines us. That's obvious. The fun comes in verse 8. But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Now, this verse is usually interpreted to mean that if you're without chastening, you didn't respond to the chastening, uh, then you weren't a real Christian. Matter of fact, that I would say is probably the standard interpretation of that verse. But what he says is, you're not a son, but you're an illegitimate. And that's the problem. Is an illegitimate son a son? Yes or no? How many of you say yes? How many of you think no? How many of you don't think? <laughs> An illegitimate son is a son, right? Well, then, what's going on here? He says you're illegitimate, and the, that's deeply significant at the time this was written, because in the Roman Empire, to be an illegitimate son 
meant that you were a son, but you didn't get any inheritance. So that's all you're saying. If you don't respond properly to this chastening, you're without the benefits of chastening, you're not going to get an inheritance. What does that mean? Stay tuned. In this series, I'm going to address that in great detail. But just to give you a hint that has to do with rewards in the kingdom. That's later. So if you don't respond to the benefits of chastening, you're not going to get a great inheritance when the Lord comes back. More about that later. The point I wish to make is really rather simple. And that is this passage is teaching that God as a father trains, child trains, disciplines his children. And the point is, you need to endure that. As if you were running a long-distance race, as if you were a son being punished by your earthly father. Endure it. Why? Well, obviously, the Lord is training you. That's the whole point of discipline, the meaning of the word. And he's doing it out of love. He loves you, and so he's training you in order to grow to Christ-like spiritual maturity. Now, I think the immediate point of this passage is persecution. And I say that because he uses such words as hostility, shame, and the cross. Uh, that, those are words describing what it's like to be persecuted. But earlier in the book, he said some pretty strong statements. Turn back to chapter 10 for a second. And look at verse 26. If we sin willfully, after that we've received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. Now, I want you to note very carefully, what I'm about to say is very important. You're listening? Read the verse carefully. For, if, what's the third word? We. The author is including himself. Right? Was the author a believer? No question about that. And he's saying, if we, he is acknowledging that he, as a Christian, could sin willfully. Now let me just ask you, can Christians sin willfully? And the answer is, yes. it's kind of weak. Yes. Can a Christian sin yes. willfully? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Now what goes on in this passage is strong language. It's so strong, some say, well, this couldn't possibly be referring to a Christian. But later in the passage, he clearly says, verse 30, the Lord will judge his people. This passage is talking about a Christian who willfully sins. And what he says is this, verse 27, if you willfully sin, you look forward to a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation. Verse 29 uses the word punishment. So in these verses, he's talking about the fact that if you deliberately uh, sin, and in the context of the book of Hebrews, this means that these Jewish Christians were abandoning Christianity and wanting to go back to Judaism. And he's saying, look, if you do that, there's no sacrifice for sin that's going to take care of sin in Judaism. You can't do that. But what will happen is God will judge you. And you don't want to go through that. He calls it a fiery indignation. He doesn't hesitate to call it punishment. He does that in verse 29. How much more worse punishment do you suppose will be thought worthy of him who's trampled the Son of God underfoot, counting the blood of the covenant for which he was sanctified a common thing, 
and insulting the spirit of grace. Clearly, he's talking about a Christian because they were sanctified by the blood of Christ. And they experienced grace, and now they're insulting grace by thinking they have to go back to Judaism. So the point I want to make is simply this. God disciplines his children. He disciplines in the normal course of life. Just things like persecution come along, trials come along, tribulations come along, and for certain, if you step out of line, it can really get severe. So severe, he calls it punishment. He calls it judgment. He calls it a fiery indignation. So, the point I've made so far out of Hebrews is real simple. God loves his children. If you've trusted Christ for the gift of eternal life, God loves you. And that means you're his child, he's your father, and as a father, he disciplines you. He allows persecution to come into your life. And if you sin willfully, he'll let you suffer the consequences of that as well. He will even judge you and spank you. We'll have a meeting out at the woodshed, as they used to say. Now, I have all kinds of questions about that. Wow! What does that look like? How does he do that? I mean, I understand a spanking. I got a few of those when I was a kid. I understand sitting in the corner. I understand having your iPhone taken away from you. But what does God do? Would you like to know the answer to that? The answer to my question is, yes, I would like to know the answer to that. All right, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I had Hebrews 10 on my mind. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Look at verse 17. Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you since you come together not for the better but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be fractions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of the others. One is hungry and another is drunk. Now let me explain. In the first century, the early church met in homes, and they met around a meal. They didn't have large congregations. They didn't have the space to do that. They had small congregations. Based on the sizes of the houses, we estimate that they had probably about 50 people in each church. And they ate together. In the middle of that meal, they observed the Lord's Supper. So the purpose of this meal was so that we could gather together and remember the Lord and Every Sunday they observed the Lord's Supper and so they could fellowship together and be instructed in the Scripture together. Now we know that by piecing together a number of passages of Scripture. We know, for example, that they called this the Love Feast. That's referred to in 2 Peter 2.12 and in Jude verse 12. So that they were getting together to love one another, to fellowship, to eat together, to share the things of the Lord together, and to remember that he died to pay for their sins. What Paul is saying is that at Corinth, you took this love feast and you handled it in a very unloving way. Look at verse 21. In eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others. So apparently they did something like a brown bag lunch. And everybody brought their own food. And those that had a lot of food would gorge themselves and start eating. Look at verse 21 again. And one is hungry and another is drunk. You didn't have a potluck so that everybody could go through the line and eat 
but some of you were gorging yourselves and some of you were actually getting drunk. Whoa! You mean in church? Answer? Yes. That's what that verse says. They were drinking wine and some of them drank it to excess. The Bible does not teach that you shouldn't drink wine. What the Bible teaches is you shouldn't get drunk. It says, be not drunk with wine. They were getting drunk at church. But what's significant here is not their drunkenness. What's significant here is they were heating ahead of each other, and some of them were going hungry. Can you imagine doing that at church? Well, if you can't, I would invite you to go to any church that has potluck. I've been to hundreds of potlucks in my lifetime, including the potluck we have here every Sunday. And we have this problem. Are you aware of that? Matter of fact, we have had people go through the line and pile, pile up two plates of food. We've had people uh, so eager to take the, the leftovers home that they start packing up that we actually supply styrofoam containers so you can take the extra food home. And some get so ahead of the others, they go through the line and pile it up before everybody gets a chance to eat. Matter of fact, that situation is so bad, I've instructed, we bought a locker and we put the styrofoam containers in the locker and locked it. And my instruction is don't open it till 1245. This is a very common problem that we get ahead of each other, butt in line, pile our plates up, and some don't get to eat. I've been a little detained talking to people and gotten there was no food left. So I'm not scolding us. I'm simply saying that's what happened there, and that's what happens today, and it's not just our church. Go to any church that has pot luck. Isn't that horrible? Well, the Lord was not happy. So Paul goes on in this passage to talk about what this is supposed to be about. And that's the passage we read when we observe the Lord's Supper. And he is saying that you are disrespecting the Lord. You have no regard, you're disregarding what this represents. By abusing the Lord's Supper, you're abusing what this stands for would be like burning the American flag. You're not just burning a flag. You're not just burning a piece of cloth. You are trampling on what that flag represents, and that is a more serious problem. So by treating the Lord's table this way, it's not just the meal that's a problem. It's that we've gathered together to fellowship and to Love one another. It's a love feast. And instead, you're disrespecting the Lord and in having disregard for believers. So, here's what he says you should do. Verse 28. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat the bread and drink the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Wow. What he's saying is this. You need to examine yourself. Are you acting in a loving way? That is his point. He says in verse 33, Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Don't jump in ahead and pile your plates up so no one else has any food. Wait for one another. So examine yourself to see if you're acting in an unloving way and wait for one another. And then he says this, verse 34, But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment, and the rest I will set in order when I come. God judges unloving conduct among his children. That is what this passage is saying. Isn't that just what human fathers do, mothers appreciate this, you need to have two kids. And they, 
As a matter of fact, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, if you have two kids, there were times they didn't love each other. Right? I've only heard of one situation in my entire life where that wasn't true. Am I telling the truth? And if you have three, you're all shaking your heads. Were you a sibling like that? I mean, isn't that true? We act in an unloving way. And what do parents do? They say, don't do that, right? Am I right? So they then what? Sit in the corner. No TV. Oh, no. No, no, no. It's real work. No iPhone. That's the current severe judgment. But God the Father sees his children acting in an unloving way, and he says... Judgment. Now that's the same that was in Hebrews. Remember that? So the question in Hebrews was, well, you never told us what the judgment was. I want to know what's the judgment. Would you like to know what's the judgment? Look at the passage. Look at verse 30. For this reason many are weak and sick and many sleep. Whoa! He is saying that the judgment is physical weakness, physical sickness, and physical death. The word sleep in the Bible is a metaphor for death. It's a figure of speech, and it's a good one, because when you're asleep, you wake up, and when you die, you are resurrected. But the point is that you could be physically weak because of the judgment of God. Now, I am not suggesting, nor is Paul, that all physical weakness is a result of sin. That's not the point. But some of it is. Matter of fact, the classic illustration of that is Samson. In Judges chapter 16, He talks about the fact that uh, if you cut my hair, I will be weak. Here was a brute of a man with great masculine strength and said, but I'm a Nazarite. I took a Nazarite vow. I don't cut my hair. And if I do, in other words, if I sin, then what? I'm going to lose my strength. You could be physically weak. The second thing he says is, if you sin, if you are judged by God, you could be physically sick. I am not suggesting, nor is Paul, that all physical sickness is a result of sin. Matter of fact, in John chapter 9, they came upon a blind man. He said, why is he blind? And Jesus said, uh, well, they said, did he, did he sin or did his parents? And there was a view in that day that if a baby was born blind, it was because of the parents' sin. Ridiculous. And Jesus said, neither. And he was blind so I could come along and heal him. So not all sickness is due to sin, clearly. Sometimes you just got in contact with a germ. The the cause can be a germ, but the cause can be God. God can use physical sickness. I will never forget the old preacher that said to me years ago, God sometimes put people flat on their back in the hospital so they will look up. And I think that's the idea here. You can sin, and the sin can cause a physical disease. You want a simple illustration? A sexually transmitted disease. So that sin is part of the judgment of God. And then he says some sleep. The implication seems to be that there is premature physical death. The Bible says there is a sin unto death. There is some sins you can commit and God says, that's enough, you're coming home now. The classic illustration of that is Ananias and Sapphira. Everybody was selling their property and giving it to the church voluntarily. You didn't have to do it. They sold their property, kept back part, and said they were giving it all. And God said, now you lied. You lied to the church. Bam! And they died on the spot. 
That is the kind of thing I think he's talking about here. So, he is now telling us what is the punishment, the judgment. It can be physical weakness, physical sickness, physical, premature physical death. One more passage, and it's short. Turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 3. Revelation, chapter 3. Is this interesting? Does this explain some things? This explains some things going on in your life. Look at Revelation, chapter 3, verse 20. I'm sorry, verse 19. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Now, first thing I want you to notice is he says, I'm going to chasten you. What does the word chasten mean? Child train, discipline, right. And why does he do it? Because he loves you. You got it. That's good. So he said, as many as I love, I rebuke. This is a little stronger word. I rebuke. Doesn't tell us how. The only passage I know of that really gives us any detail on that is 1 Corinthians. We just looked at that. So what, you should, what should you do? Be zealous. Get enthusiastic again for the Lord. And change your mind. Now, in the context, this is a letter to the church at Laodicea. And these were the very uh, self-sufficient people in all the seven churches. These were the ones that were just very adamant about the fact we can take care of ourselves. As a matter of fact, there was an earthquake prior to this in the city of Laodicea. The Roman government ordered, uh, offered to rebuild the city. And these proud Laodiceans said, no, thank you, we'll do it ourselves. We are self-sufficient. We don't need you. So they needed to change their mind. Yes, you do need us. And that's verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him. This verse is one of the most misunderstood verses in the Bible. This verse gets misinterpreted every Sunday in churches all over the world. They say God is standing at your heart's door and he's knocking on the door of your heart. And if you open the door, he'll come into you. And they use that as a salvation verse. That is not what this verse is saying. Look at the verse. Well, first of all, look at the context. This verse isn't written to an individual. It's written to a church. church. So then he says, but if any individual in the church, um, well, he says in verse 20, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come look at your Bible. What are the next, what's the next word? No, 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 no. What's the next word? I will come in, what's the next word? Two. two. Those are two different words. I will come in to, not one word I'll come into. You see the difference? And the, that's, by the way, that's the translation of every English translation I've ever looked at. He's not saying I'm going to come inside of you. He's saying I'm going to come into the church before you. And by the way, I could get real technical. I don't have the time. But that's the meaning of the Greek text very clearly. He is saying, according to the Greek words that are used, I am coming in before you. That's a literal translation. There are verses where come into, one word into, is used. And in every case, I've looked them all up, it's demon possession. This verse is not talking about salvation. It's not talking about coming into your heart. What is he going to come into the church before you to do? Save you? What does the verse say? What does that mean? We're going to go to dinner together. The old King James says, I think, says, sup with him. I really identify with that. Growing up in the South, I knew what supper meant. We're going to eat together. We're going to eat supper. They've changed it to dine. That'll do. So what's the point? 
I want to have a relationship with you. I want to take you out to dinner. I want us to sit down and have fellowship together. So invite me in, you self-sufficient souls, you. So as many as I love, I chasten them so that what? We can have a relationship again. You've gotten away from me, and I simply want to have a relationship with you. That is what he is saying. Got it? Got it. All right. Let's see if I can put all this together. If I were going to sum it up very simply, in all three passages, putting them together, I'd say this. Out of love, God disciplines his children by allowing them to be persecuted, by allowing them to be physically weak, physically sick, and even experiencing premature physical death. But his purpose is to train you. I want you to come back and have an intimate relationship with me. I don't want you to wander off. That's what he's doing. If I were going to break it down, I'd say this. God disciplines his children out of love. He clearly says that in Proverbs 3.12. He clearly says that in Hebrews 12.6. He clearly says that in Revelation 3.19. So you've, on the one hand, God is doing this because he loves you. Number two, but the discipline can be severe. And that is the kind of language that's used in Hebrews 10. It can be scourging fiery indignation, judgment. It could be physical weakness, physical sickness, premature physical death. So you've got to put these two things together. God loves you, and he will do whatever it takes to get your attention because he wants to train you to be a mature spiritual Christian and so he can have a relationship with you. Got it? Got it? I think this includes all kinds of things we go through. I think we call it trials sometimes, and you've heard me say many times, trials are for your training. I think we call it testing. I think we call it trouble. We call it persecution amazed at all the kinds of things people go through. I want to give you an entirely different perspective of all of that. The one thing I want to do today is change your mind. And that when these troubles and trials and testings, tribulations, call it whatever you will, come along, if you are a child of God, then you have God's word on the fact that he's doing this because he loves you and he's doing this because he wants to train you. I don't know how many Christians I've talked to who when they were going through some kind of severe trial thought, God is unhappy with me and he's punishing me. Well, it may be judgment because you stepped out of line, I'll grant you that, but it's not because he's punishing you as much as it is he loves you and wants to get your attention. That's what's going on. And depending on the nature of the case, that trial can be pretty severe. Now, the Old Testament contains two outstanding examples of discipline. And I want to close by mentioning them. The first is the wilderness. The Lord delivered them out of Egypt. They're his children. He says that. Takes them to Sinai, gives them the law. Takes them up to Kadesh Barnea at the south end of Palestine and says, I want you to go into this land. I'm going to bless you more than you can ever imagine. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. Go for it. He said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Let's check this out first. Uh, or as one said to somebody I know recently, 
if I tell you what the will of God is, will you do it? They said, well, I'll think about it. <laughs> That's what they did. Well, let me think about it. So they sent in 12 spies. They came back, and 10 of them said, oh, we can't do that. They're bigger than we are. Two of them said, the Lord will take care of that. Let's go. And the people went with the 10 instead of the two, and the Lord said, all right, you're going to wander in the wilderness for the next 40 years. Remember that? That whole generation did what in the wilderness? They died in the wilderness. God raised up a second generation, and he took them into the land. Now that's pretty severe. But what strikes me about that story is this. I want you to put you right dab in year 15. They are being severely disciplined. They're being chastened. They're being child trained. They're wandering in the wilderness, and I mean I've been there, it is desolation. Rather than in the land of flowing with milk and honey. And that's exactly what happens to Christians. Instead of enjoying the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and self-control. Would you like some of that? That's what you get from walking with the Lord. Instead, they decide, I'll do this my way. And then they come whining, why don't I have peace? Why don't I have joy? So maybe it's because of all the, why do I have all this going on in my life that's going wrong? Maybe it's because A, you've gotten out of the will of God, or B, you don't have God's perspective of what's going on. Maybe that's the reason. But here's what strikes me. We're right dab in the middle of the 40 years. Let's take whatever year, year 15, and you know what the Lord is doing? He's supernaturally providing food for them. It falls out of the sky. He protects them. It's amazing. In the middle of the discipline, the Lord takes care of them. What's the point? He cares and takes care of his children even in the midst of discipline. And Paul says what happened to them was written as an illustration for us. So in the midst of the worst imaginable trial, remember, the Lord loves you. But what he wants is for you to turn to him and have a relationship with him, to walk with him, so that he can bless you even more than he already has. The second illustration. It's not just the wandering in the wilderness, it's the exile. God said, get rid of that idolatry. He told them over and over and over and over. He sent prophet after prophet after prophet, get rid of that idolatry. And they wouldn't listen to him. So he said, all right, I warned you. If you do what I tell you to do, you'll enjoy the inheritance of the land, flowing with milk and honey. But if you don't do what, I'm going to throw you out of the land. That's pretty severe stuff. And that is exactly what happened. Under Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians came over, conquered Jerusalem, and in three different conquests, took people captive and hauled them off to Babylon. Now they're sitting in a foreign land. And that is divine discipline. By the way, it worked. The Jewish people have not been idolaters from that day till this. There are a lot of things, but they're not idolaters. They were taken to Babylon to cure them of idolatry, and it worked. Now, what intrigues me is this. While they were in Babylon, while they were under divine discipline, God wrote them a letter. Matter of fact, he said to Jeremiah, sit down, take a note. I want you to send a letter to the captives in Babylon. It's recorded in Jeremiah chapter 29. And here's what it says. He said, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who are carried away captive. When I have ceased to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon, oh, no, when I have caused to be carried away, to Babylon. Here's what I want you to do. Build houses, dwell in them, plant gardens, eat the fruit, take wives and have children. Seek peace and pray to the Lord. 
in chapter 29, verses 4 to 7. Then he goes on. He says, For thus saith the Lord, After seven years are complete at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you and come to you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you and will seek and, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Get it? They're in the midst of divine discipline. And the Lord says, look, I've punished you, but I want you to live a normal life. I want you to build a house. I want you to plant a garden. I want you to eat the fruit. I want you to give your sons and daughters to marriage so they can have children and you increase, not decrease. But what I really want is I want you to seek peace. I want you to seek the peace of the city you're in. Interesting. I want you to seek me because what this is all about is you were in, you got away from me. You were in idolatry and I want you back. So I'm going to discipline you to get your attention. So here's what I'm telling you. The Lord loves you. You believe that? I mean, the proof of that is Jesus died for you. God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The Lord loves you. Trials, persecutions, punishment, discipline are part of that love. So, seek him, and he will respond to you. And he goes on in Jeremiah 29 to say, and I'll bring you back to the land. In the midst of the discipline, he wants to take care of you, build a house, plant a garden, have children, have grandchildren, seek peace, but seek me. And if you do that, I will restore you back to where I want you to be. Amen? amen. And amen? And amen. Father, what a perspective. We tend to look at things from our point of view. I pray, the Lord, that you'll give us your point of view and that we will see the way you work. And Lord, help us to have that divine perspective so that we're not just looking to ourselves, but we see your hand in our life. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.